take your seats. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As you know, uh, at the 5 o'clock for the foreseeable future, we are doing a study in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that was ever preached and preached by Jesus himself. And the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of spirit-filled living today. R.T. Kendall talks about Jesus' teaching from Matthew 5 onwards on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching of the Holy Spirit or Jesus' doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So Dr. R.T. Kendall says, you want to know what Jesus teaches about the Holy Spirit and spirit-filled living? and go to the Sermon on the Mount. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was uh, R.T. Kendall's pastor and mentor, he says that the Sermon on the Mount, the whole Sermon on the Mount, is simply an explanation of Jesus' command to love one another as I have loved you. So we see that the Sermon on the Mount is a pattern for spirit-filled living. The Sermon on the Mount is not a new law. And when people approach the Sermon on the Mount and start looking at it with, and say, oh look, new laws about what you should do with your coat when somebody doesn't have a coat, and a new law about if someone slaps you on one side of the cheek, to get, they're missing the whole point. And it's important that we take the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. This is the point. If I preached a sermon and you only listened to uh, 20 seconds of it halfway through, I wouldn't be that pleased that you were actually representing what I was teaching. Uh, you, you may not understand what I'd said in my introduction and you hadn't waited to say, see what I said in my conclusion. So in order to understand the Sermon on the Mount, you must understand each verse in the context of the whole. I'm going to read what, what I have been doing each time we start. I'm going to start by reading you the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Because the Beatitudes, or the B-attitudes, the attitudes of a spirit-filled Christian, uh, these attitudes are very important to understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the spirit-filled believer in a nutshell. These characteristics should be characteristics of our lives. These are the characteristics of the man or woman that exhibits the fruit of the Spirit. But if we just stopped here with the Beatitudes, we would be like, do you know what? Just leave, that's fine. I don't intend to go over that section anyway. If we, uh, if, if, if we just stayed in the Beatitudes, then you'd be saying, well, okay, these, these are great things. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness in daily life? 
Oh, how wonderful. Blessed are the merciful. But what does it mean to be merciful in daily life? And we find that uh, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying to us, I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you practical illustrations and examples of what it means to have these Beatitudes. And you will see these examples, illustrations, principles, and from them, whatever you face in your life as you're led by the Spirit, you'll be then be able to apply by the Spirit what you should do in every given circumstance. So when we look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, these are examples of the Spirit-filled living. They're not new laws. They're not some rigid laws. And so we looked at the Beatitudes. And uh, then, uh, a couple of weeks later, we took you to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill and then in verse 20, he says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. And uh, I did a whole teaching on this. They're all up on the internet free. You can watch them at your leisure. And I said that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And so Jesus, as he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was in the middle of fulfilling the law. He hadn't fulfilled it yet. When he died on the cross and said, it is finished, at that point, the law was fulfilled. You know, when you say a prophecy is fulfilled, what do you mean? When a prophecy has been fulfilled, is that prophecy needed anymore? No, the prophecy has been fulfilled. So when the law was fulfilled... Everything the law wanted, everything the law pointed to, everything the law expected, the law was crying out for one person to fulfill its demands and commands. And when Jesus did that, the law said, my job's done. It's finished. And Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. And so when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he had two audiences in mind. He had his disciples, and that's why he said, uh, keep teaching the least in the law. Not one jot or tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. That's because at that moment when the law wasn't fulfilled, Jesus was living under the law. He was obeying the food laws. And he expected his disciples and those that followed him to obey the law as best they could until the time of the law was over and complete at the moment he died on the cross. But of course he has a second audience. He's thinking of those that will be filled with the Spirit. He's thinking of those after Pentecost. And when he says, have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, the reaction to people when they heard that was, how can you be holier than the holy ones? Pharisee means consecrated or separate one. The Pharisees, these were the holy ones. These were the ones that obeyed not only the law, but the oral traditions. I mean, how could you compete with the Pharisees? How could you compete with the scribes? They were the professors and the doctors and the bishops, if you like, of the community. How could the common people have a righteousness that exceeds the, the, the main proponents of the law? 
Well, we began to see that the righteousness that Jesus is speaking about is not external. Remember, the law is external. It doesn't deal with the heart. The law says, do not commit adultery. But it doesn't say anything about whether you commit adultery in your heart. And so Jesus begins to teach that true righteousness and true living is a heart thing. Evil is not just external acts. It comes from the heart. In order to be sanctified, in order to walk with the Lord, we have to deal with the heart. And so he begins to give examples of spirit-filled living in a righteousness from the heart that is empowered by the Spirit because nobody can do the Sermon on the Mount unless they're born again, unless they have the Spirit. You can't take the Sermon on the Mount and tell society to follow it. They can't. They don't have the power. They don't have the Holy Spirit. This is for the born-again believer. And uh, we spent some time and we first looked at anger, didn't we? And Jesus used that as an example, anger. And he says, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. And so, according to the law, you could be angry, hateful in your heart. As long as you didn't cross the line of murder, it didn't matter. But Jesus said, but I say to you, that if you have anger in your heart, you've already committed the act. It was a righteousness that was higher than that of the Pharisees. And then last week, we... Um, got to uh, verse 26, which says, Truly I say to you, sorry, verse 27, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you than one of your members perish than the whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Now, that's where we ended. And I did a lot of teaching on that last week. And we saw again that, um, uh, that, uh, that adultery was not just one of action, but God was interested in what was going on in the heart. And that God wanted us to mortify or put to death the sins of the flesh and deal with it at source by the Spirit rather than just simply not doing it in practice. A righteousness that exceeds the, the, the Pharisees. Because if we go back to the Beatitudes and we think of blessed is the man that seeks after hung, hungers and thirsts for righteousness, is that man going to lust over somebody else's wife? Is that man? Is, is, blessed are the peacemakers. Is that man going to harbor anger and hatred in his heart? No, of course not. These are examples of spirit-filled living. And now today, we go to the next section, verse 31, where having spoken about adultery and the heart of adultery, Jesus then says this in verse 31. He says, furthermore, he's linking it, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality or adultery, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, we're going to spend today looking at that verse 
And then next week, as we go on to the other verses and other illustrations of how to live the Beatitudes in daily life and other illustrations of a righteousness that exceeds that of the law, I'm going to put my foot down on the accelerator a little so we cover a little bit more ground. But with this verse, verse 32, I don't feel that I can just pass it by in five or ten minutes. And it's not often that we have an opportunity uh, at a service to address a topic like divorce. And so I'm just going to dwell on this for a little bit to give you food for thought about what Jesus is saying. Now, verse 32 is, is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is exactly one of the verses where I was warning. It wasn't I saying you have to see everything in context? that you can't just pluck things out from the Sermon on the Mount and then apply them without the rest of the sermon as a law? Well, here in this verse, that's exactly what many Christians have done. They've just dived in to verse 32 about divorce, pulled it out, and they've said, there, you see, there can be absolutely no divorce at all in any way, shape, or form unless your husband or wife commits adultery. And if you divorce for any other reason than your husband or wife commits adultery, then you are living in adultery if you remarry, and that's all there is to it. And that's their doctrine of divorce. But the problem is, is they haven't understood the context of this verse. This verse is an illustration of spirit-filled living. It's an illustration of the heart. And, and Jesus has not changed the subject about lust. He's still talking about lust in your heart and not just committing adultery physically, but if you commit lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And so when he comes to verse 32, it's not a new topic. Unfortunately, in some of your Bibles, you get a heading like divorce and remarriage or something, as if Jesus has stopped and said, right, well now I've taught on lust, I'm going to teach on a totally new topic, I'm going to teach on divorce. You see, if you separate this verse from what he's just been speaking about, adultery and adulterous heart, then, then you will not understand the context of it. The context of verse 32 is about the seventh commandment that we spent a lot of time looking at last week. If you missed it, watch it on the internet. It's there on the media thing. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. And Jesus was saying, look, it's not just the act, but it's the heart behind it that we need to deal with it. He is still talking about lust. And in verse 32, he's talking about the lust in the heart that causes this type of divorce. The lust. The lust in the heart, the adultery in the heart that makes people divorce because they want to marry somebody else. Or they want to be single or separate from their wife or husband. They want to be single again. They want to play the field again, if I can put it that way. And that's why in verse 32 it says, look, 
I say to whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, commits her to, uh, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced com commits adultery. The whole context of this passage is adultery and the lusts behind it. Now, later on in this sermon, we're going to spend some time in 1 Corinthians 7. Because those that say that the only way you could ever in any way, shape and form ever even countenance divorce in the Christian community is if your wife or husband commits adultery or got the blinkers on. Because we will see when we go to 1 Corinthians 7 that Paul actually says that divorce is permissible if you have been deserted. If your unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife deserts you, doesn't want to be with you anymore, then you are free from that marriage. And we're going to get to that. I just wanted to bring that in right now to show you that those that harp on about this one verse out of context, well, they haven't even been dealing with some of the, 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 the other issues. This, verse 32, is an example, like I've been telling you, Examples, illustrations, and principles. This is an example and illustration of how people commit adultery. And in those days, we need to recognize that, um, that, uh, that divorce was very, very permissible and easy in the Jewish law and the Jewish of that time. You might think in your mind, you might think, oh, back in the old days when Jesus is around, I bet they really supported traditional marriage. I bet back in ancient Israel and under the law, I bet it was like until death do you, do you uh, part and, and that nobody ever divorced and that this idea of quick fix divorces, easy divorces for no real valid reasons, I bet, that, bet that's just something that was modern where you couldn't be more wrong and I need to show you that. So we're going to just move a little bit out of this before we come back to this verse. And you might like to come with me to see what the law said about divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Deuteronomy 24:1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanliness in her. And he writes her a, a, a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she's departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the next husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who's divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And so here in this passage, you get this picture. And in this picture, if... if for some reason, and we're going to look at what, what could that reason possibly be, this displeasure. If this woman displeases him, then the man is allowed to give her a certificate of divorce just like that, put it in her hand, 
and send her away. If that woman gets married again and uh, the, the former husband wants her back and a new husband dies, he is forbidden to take his divorced wife back. Can you see that in the law? Now, what does that mean in practice? Well, do you know, Jesus was asked about his interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 4, uh, by the Pharisees. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 19. I'm teaching you this simply because so many Christians are totally ignorant about these matters, and we are living in a society where divorce is rife, uh, not just outside the church, but also in the church. And also within the church, people have all sorts of ideas about who can be divorced and who can't be divorced. And people who want to be divorced seem to be able to pluck up any reason why they have, have a, a legitimate reason to be divorced. And I just want to give you a little bit, you know, I know I'm going slightly off subject, uh, but I, want to, I just want to give you a bit, little bit of teaching with this opportunity. Now, Matthew chapter 19 <clears throat> and, uh, and verse 3. Remember, we've just read Deuteronomy 24, and the Pharisees know it, and Jesus knows it. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Can you see how they're referring to the Deuteronomy passage? That if a man, if a woman displeases a man, if the wife, he can send her, can you see how they're referring to that? Is it lawful for any man to divorce his wife just for any reason? And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses get command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Can you see they're still talking about Deuteronomy 24? They're having a discussion on what that means. Well, why then did Moses say we could give her a certificate and send her away? And Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries an, another commits adultery. And whoever marries her, is, uh, her who is divorced commits adultery. And his disciples listened to everything that was said and said, You know what? <laughs> Sounds better not to get married at all. Which I think is quite funny. <laughs> so, uh, and the, why did they ask him this question? Why did they say... In verse 4, sorry, in verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife just for any reason? Well, there was two schools of thought at this time about what Deuteronomy 24 was talking about, about why a man could divorce. And the women are saying, what about the women divorcing the men? This is the law. So, why could a man? And there was a question, well, what does this mean? And there were two schools of thought. Bible scholars, you may, may have heard of these. There was the Rabbi Shammai. Shammai, S-H-A-M-M-E-I, if you're making notes. Shammai. And the Rabbi Hillel. And they were like two schools of thought. 
and they interpret the scriptures differently. And, and the Pharisees and Sadducees and the teachers of the laws were usually in one school of thought or the other. There was another rabbi called Gamaliel and Paul came out of his school of thought. Now, they had two different opinions on this passage of divorce. The first was the Rabbi Shammai and his school of thinking. And uh, they said that uh, they were quite strong on this. They said, look, this divorce is a serious business. And unless something grave takes place in that relationship, short of adultery, short of adultery, because, of course, if someone committed adultery, they'd be stoned to death, wouldn't they? So this isn't adultery. That was clear. If your wife committed adultery or if the husband of a Jewish wife committed, you were stoned to death. So this is divorce for, for other reasons, short of adultery. And they said, look, it would have to be, it would have to be something like tremendous cruelty, um, uh, mental or, or physical abuse or just something that is really that the whole community would say this is totally outrageous and unacceptable so they had quite a, a high level of thinking that wh when Moses says if a woman displeases a man that this would be a serious serious community issue but that was Shammai the school of Hillel well they were easy going I mean, they were like modern Westerners, liberal, over-liberals, libertines today. And the school of Hillel, of what, of what these Pharisees were part of. They said any and every reason that a man or husband wanted. Do you know, and it is true, that you had a right uh, under the law, and it was practice, that you could divorce your wife for being a bad cook. If she burnt your food, some of the men are thinking, well, that is quite serious. That is, that is quite serious. If you don't, if you burnt the food or weren't a good cook, you had the right to give your wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. If, if, and listen to this man, you might think this is serious too, if she lost her looks. If she lost her looks and was displeasing to you, you had every right as a man to give her a certificate of divorce and send her packing. If you saw a newer model, <laughs> if the old model was getting, you know, a few miles on the clock and you saw a newer model, you had the right to give your wife a certificate of divorce and send her on the way if you were from the school of Hillel. So can you see those naughty, nasty little Pharisees, these particular ones, when they went up to Jesus causing mistri mis uh, mischief, thank you, mistress, mischief. Is that, it's talking us, isn't it? In, 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 in verse 3, oh, Jesus, what? Uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? You see the background from which they were coming? And you know, Jesus wasn't going to play their game as he, as he never does. And, and he said, you know what? You're really way out of line. You are, I'm not even going to answer 
that disrespectful question. That's such a disrespect. You don't, you have no idea the esteem that my father holds women in. No idea. Let me tell you. Have you not read at the beginning? And Jesus goes back beyond the law, right to the beginning. And this is where Jesus gets his teaching of marriage. Not from the law, but from the Garden of Eden before the fall. And he says, haven't you read at the beginning? He made them male and female. And this is marriage. That a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus, you know, here we are, aren't we? In the midst of discussions in the Western world, in Britain and America, about what is marriage and who can be married. And, you know, people wanting to make, well, we'll make marriage whatever we want. We'll make marriage this, that, and the other. Get divorced because you've fallen out of love. It's very similar, isn't it, to the school of Hillel, isn't it, today in society? It's like, you know, why are you getting married? Because we want to. I mean, why are you getting uh, divorced? Because we want to. Okay. Why are you getting divorced? Oh, I found somebody else that I'm in love with. Okay. And so divorce is like, is like it's not a big issue. Not a big issue to society today. And marriage. Well, what's marriage? Well, if we want a man to marry a man, what's it to you? That's marriage. Why shouldn't a man marry a man? Well, that may be your opinion of what marriage is, but marriage was around long before Great Britain and all the clever people that are around today. Marriage was around a long time. Marriage was around in the Garden of Eden. It was one of the first institutions that God gave us that Adam would marry Eve. And okay, whatever your opinion on his marriage, let me tell you something. Jesus has an opinion on what marriage is. And this is Jesus' opinion. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to a wife. And the two shall become one flesh. You see, I'm not going to go into details, but seeing as it's topical, how can two men become one flesh? How can two men become one flesh? They can't become one flesh biologically because a man is not biologically created to become one flesh with another man. It's against biology. But man, how does man become one flesh with a woman? Well, they are created perfectly for spiritual, emotional, and physical union in the confines of marriage. So the two will be one. So even, even the, we know that the law permitted polygamy, didn't it? But Jesus said, all this is second rate. And, it, and, and is God just, you were so out of order that, that, that because of your hardness of heart, God permitted it. But this isn't God's plan. God's plan is that two will become one forever. Well, for, for their life. 
when we're in heaven, we'll be like the angels of God. But two will become one and don't separate it. This is the teaching of marriage. But then they said, well, okay, why did Moses give a command to command why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put them away? They're looking again for the outclaws. And he says, Moses did it because of your hardness of hearts. He permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And then he repeats the command. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another. Now this is the key. Why in this verse 9, why is the person divorcing his wife? In this particular situation, in this particular example, in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another. Can you see that? The example here is a man saying, I'm divorcing you, away you go, and I'm going to marry somebody else. So Jesus in this verse isn't talking about other reasons that, that, that a, a marriage might dissolve, true? He's speaking specifically. And why is he doing it? Because this is what was happening in Israel at the time. Men were abusing women. And, and the women, well, they were in a difficult situation. Because in those days, you know, women didn't have careers. Women were dependent on their husbands for keep. That's the way it was. So when a man said to his, said to his wife, uh, for this reason or that, or for any reason, just because you displease me, I'm going to divorce you. What a terrible thing that they were doing. And especially if it was adulterous heart, lust, that they'd seen someone else that they wanted to marry, so they get rid of their wife, and she's left to fend for herself, and then they go and marry somebody else. It was divorce because of adultery, because of lust. Can you see that back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, look, it's not just don't commit adultery. But you see, the Pharisees didn't think they were committing adultery. Why? Because I've just divorced my wife. She burnt my tea. I've seen a better model. I gave her the divorce certificate. She's out now I can marry and I'm not committing adultery. See, this is the thing about the law. Um, the, the law is good and the law was right. But you see, the law never dealt with the sin issue in the heart. And what people did is they simply found loopholes in the law. Loopholes. I mean, it's like the tax laws, isn't there? Um, the tax laws are so difficult for the people to put tax laws in. Because as soon as the new tax law, a lot of people go to their accountants and say, is there any way we can get out of it? So the spirit of a tax law m might be, right, this type of rich people with, with more houses or whatever, we're going to ask them to pay a little bit more or a lot more into the government because we think that's fair. And that's the spirit of the law, isn't it? And that, that sounds good. And then the rich people with all these houses say, wait a second, you know, is there any way, forget the spirit of the law, is there any way you can get me out? Is there a loophole? Is there some way, can I, can I move the money to a different country or can I put it into something else or can I do anything in order to get out of this law? And, and the law becomes something you try and avoid, isn't it? So these people... They were using this law 
And they were using it and saying, I'm not committing adultery, but you're on your third wife. I'm not, I sent them away. I, I, Moses gave us the divorce certificate. She burnt my toast on Monday morning. I had every right under the law of Moses to send her away. And I just so happened to marry a supermodel a few days later. That's what was happening. So this was being driven by lust. Lust. And of course the problem was, as, as we read here, is that when you divorced your wife for whatever reason you wanted to, where did that leave her? Well, normally it left her in a place where she needed to find somebody else to marry. Because you're destitute. Maybe she would go back home to her parental families, but the expectation was that she should be married. And so then you had these divorced wives who are out there now looking for a new husband. Doesn't it sound like the Western world today? People being divorced and getting remarried and having new partners and families being split up. And a lot of it, we're talking, a lot of it is just pure selfish lust and lack of commitment and loyalty to your wife or your husband. Can you see how Jesus is striking at the root? So this context that Jesus is, is talking about here in, in Matthew 19, it's talking about lust. And it says, I say to you, if you divorce your wife except for sexual Morality and marries another, you commit adultery. So in other words, you can't just divorce your wife and marry somebody else, thank you, because you want to. And this can come in many different forms. It might not be that they had a woman in mind. Often some people do. It's amazing how. And, and we've seen this, and I'm certainly not going to mention any names because that we're not like this at Kensington Temple. We don't mention names. Uh, we're not, we're not going to be the first to cast a stone. But at the same time, we can talk about what's real. And you can see this, and you can see this even in the ministry around the world. It's amazing how when ministers get divorced, how quickly they get a new wife. I could give you example after example, some household names of ministers that for whatever reason... And we're not talking about the reason, we don't know. The, but they get divorced, and within a few months they're already courting. Well, it makes you wonder, and we can't judge individual cases, it makes you wonder what's going on in their heart. That something could be, oh, I'm free at last. And whatever reason I give you, I'm looking. And then, bang, they're married. Bang, in a few months. And you think, what's going on? You see? So the, these things are not just out there in the world, but also, unfortunately, in the church as well. And so if you divorced your wife because you want to be single, we've had to deal over the years with, with relationships and marriages that have broken down and we've tried everything to help them, but one or two or, 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 of the parties, the husband or the wife, basically they just want to be single again. They don't have anybody, you know, around the corner waiting for them. But they don't want to be married anymore. They want to go back to a single, free-style life. Now, they'll give other reasons, but it's plainly obvious to those that don't have an axe to grind what's going on. They want to be single. Oh, that's the same thing. You want to be single. You want to be free. 
so that you can be young, free, and single again. And so that you can mingle and say, I am free now. And you might say you're not looking, but you're putting yourself in a place where you might look. And so you send your, you send your wife away. So this is lust-driven. Oh, you can send your wife away for anything. Because why would you send your wife away for anything? Why would you do that? And Jesus says, look, I understand that if your wife or husband commits adultery and breaks the covenant, I understand that you may, you may want to divorce because the marriage is broken. I understand that. But to divorce your wife or husband because you want to be free and single and back in the, um, what's the word? What? Back in the game, the race, I don't know what we call it in there. Dating game, you want to be back out there, free and single, that's lust-driven. Let's go back to um, uh, Matthew 6. You see, context is important, isn't it? Matthew 6. So we've had, we've had in Matthew 6, verse 27, you've heard, don't commit adultery. And the Pharisees are saying, we're not. We're divorcing and freeing ourselves to have other wives, so we're not committing adultery. And Jesus says, I'm going to nail you. I'm going to bring a righteousness that is above the law and above the Pharisees and scribes. I say to you, if you look at a woman to lust for her, you've already committed adultery. Forget about your false interpretations of Mosaic law. Forget about the burnt toast and all the excuses and loopholes that you want to get out of your marriage. I'm telling you, if you've got lust in your heart outside the marriage that, and, and that you are entertaining, you're an adulterer already. Now that doesn't mean that people don't struggle with these issues. Jesus is just pointing out that these issues are serious. Okay, So if you say, oh dear, every time... I, I've already said to you last week, you didn't hear last week, and you think that this week is interesting, and you didn't hear last week, listen to last week, because you get in the second part of this. And I said, we were created sexual beings, male and female, he created us. Okay, So that means that there'll be people that cross your path that you will be instinctively attracted to. That's not sin in itself. It's what you do with that, attract, that attractiveness that when you're attracted. It's what you do with it. It's whether you harbor it, dwell on it, think about it. That's when sin becomes conceived in the heart. That's when the actions of the heart may eventually become the actions of what you do and you begin to be inappropriate. You begin to think, you see what I'm saying? That's what Jesus said. So he was saying, you Pharisees, you've got no out clause here. And be strong. Cut it off at the root. Don't entertain those things in your heart. Be brutal with it. Mortify the sins of the flesh. And he gave those powerful symbols of cutting off your hand. Of course, he didn't mean really cut off your hand. Because if your hand caused you sin, you cut it off. You've got another one, haven't you? You pluck out your eye to stop you sinning. Well, you've got another one, haven't you? And you pluck that one out. You've got two ears. You've got your head. You've got... A... I mean, where does it stop? We'd have arms and legs and heads all over the place trying to be sanctified for the Lord. So when he comes to this place of, um, furthermore it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, verse 31, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's thinking about what's going round. We looked at in Matthew, the certificate, give her it, give her it, 
Give her it. The certificate of divorce. He says, wait, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife for any other reason than sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. He is speaking about issues of lust. This is the issues of lust, yes? That's why I've entitled this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Lust and Divorce. Because Jesus is dealing with divorce that is linked to lust. This is the, the whole context of what we're doing. But before, before we break in five or six minutes time, um, I, I would like to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This isn't a full teaching on marriage and divorce. It's just what we're looking at here is an illustration of of walking in righteousness, spirit-filled righteousness, I've just decided to dwell on this a little bit to give you food for thought and help. Um, so, 1 Corinthians 7. Because it's interesting, I've, I've met Christians who say this, who take that verse that we read in Matthew 5, and they say this, do you know what? If you, for any reason, any reason at all, accept that your husband or wife commits adultery, if, put that aside... That's the only reason that you can be divorced. If for any other reason you marry somebody else, then you are living in immorality and you are an adulterer. And the only thing that you could possibly do is get rid of your new wife or husband and go back to your first wife because she's still your first wife. But the interesting thing is, is that according to the law, you're not allowed to do that. When we read in the law, didn't we, in Deuteronomy 24, it's quite strange. It says, now listen, if you divorce your wife, according to the law, if you divorce your wife, you can't have her back. So the law recognizes that divorce is real. So this idea that you went through a divorce and a Christian says, right, you need... Well, I've had Christians say to other Christians, Christians who have been divorced years ago, even before they became a Christian, I've had Christians tell them, well, you need to go back to that man or that woman because they're your wife and you can't marry anyone else because if you do, you'll be committing adultery according to that verse. So you need to go, well, I haven't seen them for five, ten years. These Christians don't even recognize divorce. But Jesus, although he was very strong on divorce, recognized it as a possibility, didn't he? He recognized it. And the law recognized it. But here I want to show you 1 Corinthians 7 verse 12, 13. Or ver let's start from verse 10. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Now to the married I command, I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. A husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing, if he, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, etc., etc. And verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So what Paul is saying, and this is what he was facing. Remember, what we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount is illustrations and examples of things that you will face in life. 
and how the beatitude person is expected to respond. This isn't a new letter of the law. It's not the letter of the law. It's the spirit of what Jesus is saying. You hear what I'm saying? And we see Paul acting spirit-filled in the same manner to a situation that he was now facing. He's not talking about lust here. He's not talking about the desire for adultery and getting rid of your wife or husband because you want to uh, have sex with somebody else or be married to somebody else. What he's talking about is he's talking about desertion. Desertion. And he's seeing that in this situation, people are getting radically saved. And people are getting saved, and the husband is getting saved, but the wife isn't yet. Or the wife is getting saved, and the husband isn't yet. And the call of the Lord on the husband and wife is paramount. You don't give up your faith for your husband. You don't give up your faith for your wife. You don't give it up for your parents. You don't give it up for your children. You don't give up your faith for anybody. And he's saying, look, even though they're not following the Lord... If they wish to remain married, then you stay with them. This idea, well, I got born again now, and my husband, he's like, he's still in Adam, but I'm in Christ, and he's a sinner, and I'm the righteousness of God, bless God. And Jesus doesn't want me to be married to that old sinner anymore. Paul is saying, no way, no way. That's the wrong attitude. Is that the beatitude attitude of mercy, seeking righteousness, hunger? No, it's not. No, it's not. But... If your husband kicks you out and refuses to be with you or your wife leaves you and doesn't want anything more to do, you, do with you because of Christ, then in the end, if they don't want anything more to do with you, then you are free to marry again if they divorce you. You are free. So he's taking a principle, isn't he? And dealing with a situation that he faces. Let me ask you, if you came across in a marriage horrendous physical an emotional abuse, say of the husband to the wife, although we have seen it by the wife to the husband. So it can occur in both ways. Horrendous um, abuse. Would you, and you don't have to answer, just in your mind, would you say that if that abuse is not dealt with and dealt with properly, that that person has to stay in that abusive marriage and be abused physically, emotionally for the rest of their lives. Would you say that? Okay. Would you say that? If it was really taking place, not pretend, but really taking place, would you say that? Would you say that? Would you say that if there was that type of abuse and, there was, and we've seen this, and there is no change, the person doesn't want to change, the person is violent, abusive, and the woman or husband says, I just can't take any more, and you know what they're saying is true, it's demonstrable, would you say, well, we understand if that's your decision, we'll stand by you. If you want to divorce because of these reasons and start afresh, we'll stand with you. Would you say that or would you say no? Now, it's difficult speaking like that, isn't it? Because I'm being general as if uh, general and specific. But, but this is the point. The Sermon on the Mount isn't general laws that you simply apply to everybody right where they are. You know what I'm saying? These are principles from which we can draw understanding so that when we see different situations and scenarios, we can say, what would Jesus do? We can see what are the principles of the Sermon on the Mount that should be applied here. What are the feelings of the people that's going on here? But also... This, isn't, this is not now saying an easy divorce. No way. 
We can also speak in and say, do you know what? We're not happy with you two wanting to divorce. There's no reason for you to divorce except self. You can work on this marriage. You can change. This is selfishness or this is lust or there is no reason for you to be married. And you can make up all the excuses you want. But we, brothers and sisters that are helping you in this marriage, we are convinced that this marriage can be saved. There's no reason for you to divorce. We can say that. And if you do, then, you know, we're not happy. And, and you have to take that before the Lord. Okay, I've not given you a full-blown doctrine, but I'm just trying to... I want to loosen you up from legalism. I want to loosen you up from narrow-minded, blinkered thinking where one size fits all. I want you to understand the spirit of what Jesus is, says and not become Christian legalists. I want you to uphold what Jesus has uphold, that marriage should be as it was in the beginning. And we should do everything we possibly can to have the marriage that Jesus spoke about as it was in the beginning. And it's possible to have marriages like that. But also we have to re realize that in this fallen world, we're going to have to make some decisions. It's going to take maturity, spirituality, faithfulness to holiness, but also dealing with the real world. And let me finish on this. How did Jesus, did Jesus ever have to pastorally deal with adultery? Did he ever come across adultery? Was he ever asked, if Jesus was the senior minister of a church, was he ever asked to deal pastorally or with discipline with a situation of adultery in his church? Yes, John's gospel, isn't that right? So the Pharisees, because they were out, they didn't like what he was saying about marriage. Just give me two minutes. I know I've got them. Just give me two more minutes. They didn't like what Jesus said about marriage. Because he was shutting every loophole. Not only was he shutting every loophole, but he was also speaking into their hearts. It was a righteousness that exceeded the scribes and the Pharisees, and they didn't like it one bit. So they thought, we're going to find an opportunity to sort him out. How dare he try and prevent our adulterous ways? And so they bring this woman caught in adultery. They don't give a hoot about this woman. They don't care about this woman one bit. Here is an adulterer, and we're going to bash Jesus with this situation. The whole bunch of them drag this adulteress before Jesus and they say, what are you going to do? The law of Moses, we've got one now, Jesus. You talk about adultery in your heart. You, you, you speak into our lives. You judge us. Well, all right. You don't like adultery. You say that we shouldn't even have lust in our heart. Here's one who actually did the act. So you who hates adultery so much, judge this woman. And we know what judgment the law says. And Jesus sits down and begins to write in the sand. And it's funny because uh, people don't know what he was writing. And uh, I heard one preacher say this. And I thought, it was quite, that preaches quite well. I don't know if it's true or not. It preaches quite well. He said, with all those men around there, what Jesus was writing in the sand, he was writing the names of all their mistresses <laughs> and all their girlfriends. And as they read... From the youngest to the old. Because none of them, none of them were righteous enough to cast that stone. None of them. Neither are we. Neither are we. But Jesus looked at her 
and he dealt with adultery. He says, do they condemn you? He said, no. He said, neither do I. Sin no more. Isn't that wonderful? If you've gone through a divorce for whatever reasons, perhaps it was a terrible, abusive situation that you found yourself trapped in. We've helped people out of things like that. Perhaps it was a mess and you, you had your part to play when you look back on it. Well, whatever it is, we don't brush these things on the carpet. Jesus paid for these things on the cross. It's a serious business, a serious business. But I want you to know that you can, if you're serious with God, draw a line in the past and hear the words, I don't condemn you, but I don't want you to stay where you are. Sin no more. Let me say this as well. It could be that some people watching this you are in this situation or been in this situation and you haven't come to terms with God about it. So in other words, you'll say, well, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. I know people that have divorced Christians right now that are walking around saying it wasn't their fault because the only way that they can do it is by saying it wasn't their fault and you know what? They played their part. And it's important. You don't have to tell anyone about it. It's important you say, do you know what, Lord? I do carry blame for that. You'll say, all right, all right, I don't condemn you. Move on. Follow the Sermon on the Mount. Tomorrow's a new day. God's grace is new every morning. Don't stay in it, though. Don't stay in it. Don't stay there. Don't keep there. Move on. You can be bright and clean in just one heartfelt prayer to the Lord. I hope this has helped you. Sorry I've gone on five minutes late. Next week, we're going to go on and get through these other examples, put our foot down on the accelerator. I hope you realize why I felt I needed to dwell here for a while this week. So we'll see you all next week. Thank you.